John uh, chapter 13, verse 35, uh, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Um, it seems that, that God's family is truly supposed to love one another. And tonight, we, or this morning, we looked at kind of one aspect of loving one another and what that means. We're going to look at that again and kind of uh, dig into it a little bit more. But uh, then we're going we're gonna to explore a little bit more about uh, some different things about what it means to be in the body of Christ, to be brothers and sisters in Christ, and how we're to treat one another. And so, <clears throat> with that in mind, remind you from James chapter 5, which we had this morning, um, where we looked at the fact that uh, as Christians, uh, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're, we're supposed to... Um, when we see someone wandering from the truth, we're supposed to uh, bring them back, help them to return to the truth. We look at the consequences of straying from the truth. And when you stray from the truth, it means death. And um, so that's, that's not a good thing. So if we truly love one another and we see someone straying from the truth, then we would want to bring them back. Now, I... I uh, Talked about it a little bit this morning, but I want to uh, dig into it a little bit deeper, this whole idea of truth and what, what truth is. Uh, and, is. and kind of by just comparing it with the most predominant view in uh, academic circles, uh, at least in the Western world, about what truth is. And as I mentioned this morning, it's called postmodernism. When philosophers get to looking at the world and they see problems with the world, they will come up with ideas of what they, how they think uh, these problems need to be fixed with their philosophy and their theories about life. There have been critique, um, I guess, started in the, probably the late 1960s and into the 70s, and they were beginning to cr critique uh, modernity or, or the modernism view, the kind of the... Uh, uh, industrial Revolution, uh, uh, is that the right term for that? Industrial Revolution? Okay. Where you, you begin to see man saying man is the end all of, of all things and we can do anything we want and so they start putting it into practice with the Industrial Revolution and so you see, you know, when, when I was uh, growing up the earliest ages, not everybody had telephones. And even my dad, who worked for the telephone company, we had a phone. We're out in the country, so we were on a party line. So you just had the one phone. And, and to imagine where technology is today, where every one of us in here has our own cell phone that we carry around with us. And it's not just a phone. It's a camera. It's a recording device. It's an alarm clock. It, uh, it's a video machine. It's uh, um, a computer. You can look up anything you want to. And um, I, I imagine every one of us in here has our own little cell phone. We've come a long way. Technology has moved us a long way. You think of the technology and the advancements in uh, uh, the space. Remember, I remember when man uh, first landed on the moon. It's such an amazing thing. And when they got back uh, to Earth, I remember I was at school and we were all in the lunchroom. And uh, the story got out amongst the kids there that uh, I guess somebody announced that, that, uh, that the astronauts had, had landed safely. And so I said to some of my friends at the table, well, let's let out a yell. And teacher looked at me and said, you better not let out a yell. <coughs> Stop me pretty quickly right there. But um, j just to see the, the advancements in, in that industry. 
But you think back to kind of like the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, where uh, you had uh, all the salt shops, you know, and the and they would they would make the children uh, child labor and all of these sorts of things. And you see, you see different things that happened along the way. And so the philosophers began to look at that and go, so much of what is happening here is wrong. Um, you know, we can't treat children that way. Women, it seemed to be, they thought women were suppressed during that time and other minorities. The blacks were suppressed. If you were other type of minority, you were suppressed. And they said what, the, the, what happened is uh, certain types of individuals would gain power and then they would, they would hold his power over other people and hold them down. And part of the way that they gained power was through this idea of truth. And they'd say, we have the truth. And so the philosophers said, there's a problem with all of this stuff that went on from that. And what the main problem was is that these individuals took this idea of truth and lorded it over others and held them down. We don't want to hold them down anymore. We want to lift them up. So what, how, do we, how do we get past this? Well, they began to say the main problem was the idea of truth. And holding truth over these uh, suppressed peoples. And so what we need to do, their philosophy, get rid of the idea of truth. And so they came up with the idea that... Um, Everyone's truth is dependent on their uh, cultural background, their growing up. They call it their paradigm. Okay? And sometimes you will hear it in, in uh, literary terms. It's like your narrative. I don't know if y'all have ever heard being your narrative, your, your meta-narrative, uh, uh, which is, is what you grew up in. Right? And so uh, all of us growing up in America, in the South, um, we have the Bible Belt, and we think a certain way about truth, and certain things are, are true for us. But it would be wrong for us, I would say, to take our view and our ideas of truth and go to other people, like people growing up in Africa and the, in the jungles and everything. They grew up with a different idea of truth. So it would be wrong for us to go and take our idea of truth and try to place it on them. And their idea of truth is just as good as our idea. Well, you see this beginning to work its way out in education, and you see it in the different fields. Let me give you one example in the field of history, okay? Do you remember growing up our history classes? What did we study in history? History. <laughs> we, we would study world history. We would study American history. U.S. history. U.S. history. Or maybe you would even study certain times in history, early American history or latter American history, and put the, the years on it and stuff, or ancient history, or you know the Middle Ages and so on. Now you go to the universities, and these aren't the types of classes they have in the history sections anymore. Now what do they have? Well, in elementary school, it went from being taught history to something called social studies. Okay. Yeah. Where it was a you didn't get any solid geography or any solid history. It was just kind of a amorphous stuff. Okay. I remember that. So you go into the colleges and universities now, and your history classes are women's history, right? Women's suffrage history. So they talk about how the women have suffered all these years and all the sufferings and different things they've been Black history. And so all of the trials and the, and the problems that they had from those who were lording truth over them and holding them down with it. 
So this is the kind of ideas that you, that you got. And so you'll see the history uh, course is changing in that sort of way. And you can see the philosophy uh, postmodernism affecting even the teaching of history. It affects a lot of other uh, aspects of, the, of our teaching too. And so um, that's just one aspect of how it's changed in the university. So our, our students go and they learn that uh, you know, we, we as a nation, I'm not trying to be political here, please forgive me, but we as a nation were founded by uh, all, you know, white uh, uh, slave owners, and we were a terrible nation, and so you get that uh, thrown out there for everybody. Um, and so uh, their solution is to do away with the idea of absolute truths. And they would say that uh, truth is known by different individuals according to how they grew up. They would say that, therefore, there is no idea of truth that is over all people. No, no uh, overall overarching truth, which would, we would call absolute truth. Okay? They would say that's not there. It's not possible to be there because everybody has their own truths according to the culture they grew up in. Are you following me, kind of? And that's okay. an absolute truth. That's true for all people. Yeah. Absolute truth. I don't care where you're at, brother. The sun is hot. I don't care I'm with you. Um, and, and they would say that you can't use the idea, it is wrong for you to use the idea of truth to hold others down. Now, before James spurted, spouted it out just then, <laughs> I was going to ask a question. I was going to state that these are self-defeating claims, and why are they self-defeating? Because they become absolute truth. That is an absolute statement. And they would say that it is wrong for you to place your morals on other people. What is wrong with that statement? That's what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. They're placing their morals on you saying it is wrong for you to do that. It's wrong for you to tell anybody else what's right and wrong. <laughs> How does that work? They're self-defeating claims. So they're, they're doing, by making these sorts of claims, what they say is wrong for us to do. Truth, there is such a thing as truth. Ron gave one illustration, you know, that the sun is hot no matter where you are. There is truth as well that um, um, the, the certain things that seem undeniable uh, in truth that is overall, and it is impossible for anyone to really get away from that and still speak logically. It is, it is anyone who tries to do away with it, by trying to do away with it, they're making the claim, by, by making that claim, they're doing what they say you can't do. Who has set them up, right? But there is a truth. We saw it this morning, Jesus and talking to Pilate, of course, uh, uh, that his kingdom, he's a king uh, of the truth. And where Jesus said he is uh, <clears throat> the way, the truth, and the life. And he tells the religious leaders, you know, anyone that follows him, follows the truth, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The New Testament is quite clear, the fact that there is such a thing as truth. And it doesn't matter what culture you grew up in or what you were taught growing up. 
if, if what you were taught, you know, when we were very little, I don't mean to uh, disturb David, so you might need to close your ears right now. But when we were young, we were taught that Santa Claus was coming on December 25th, right? <laughs> Simply because we were taught that, it doesn't mean that it was true. Right? Now, you know that, <laughs> don't you? Um, but, but there are other things that we're, we're taught that, that aren't necessarily uh, true. Simply because you're taught something in your culture doesn't mean that, that it is true. But truth does exist, and it is something that is apart from me. Um, it is apart from my culture, and it is something that everyone uh, actually holds to. Um, now, we might disagree on... Truth and ethics work very closely together. And so we're going to move into ethics just, just for a little bit here. But someone would say there's no absolute standard of right and wrong out there. And someone who would, who would say that to you, um, they would be fine with saying that. And maybe in, in their philosophical world it will fit. But so they're writing it on their computer and typing it out. And as they're writing and typing it out on the computer, you come and pick it up and start walking away with it, with their computer, what are they going to say? What are you doing? You're stealing my computer. And you go, well, is that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> you just said that it wasn't wrong. There's no, but they know that there is. And they expect you to know it too. And even in, in, in saying such things as, you don't have any right to tell anyone else what is right and wrong. They are showing that they know a difference between right and wrong. Now, we may disagree on those things that are right and wrong, but everybody knows that there is a standard to which we all, when you begin to use words like ought, you ought to believe these, you ought to do that, or you shouldn't do that. Fixing to. <laughs> Fixing to has nothing to do with it. But you ought to or you shouldn't. What are they doing? They're making moral claims. Moral claims that they say you should know. And because you should know it, you should do or not do it. And so they're, by making statements like that, they're admitting, whether they want to admit it or not, they're admitting that they do recognize that there is a standard that's outside of all of us and which is over all of us and that we ought to obey. And so um, this is just kind of uh, some of the importance of truth. Um, and, uh, you know, especially in our education, in our world today, so many are <clears throat> wanting to get away from the idea uh, of truth. And so James tells us that we have a responsibility um, to, uh, to keep our brothers and sisters from wandering from the truth. And we, where do we find the truth? Well, God is truth, Jesus is truth, and therefore his word is truth. And so when we see in black and white here the way that Christians should live, which James has been telling us throughout, we have a responsibility for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to see that we hold each other to that. And I, I believe in uh, Jesus' uh, uh, teaching about uh, discipline in Matthew 18, if, if your brother has sinned against you, you're, you're to go and, and tell him. And if he repents, then uh, you've won your brother, right? If he doesn't, then you take two or three witnesses and you 
three confront him. If he still doesn't uh, repent, you take him to the church. And if he still doesn't repent as he comes before the church, you treat him as a tax collector. You kick him out. This is where excommunication comes from. You kick him out of the church. Um, and so we see that uh, truly as brothers and sisters in Christ, part of the, the, the idea of love for one another is keeping one another from straying from the truth. And so we have to confront when that sort of thing happens. That's one of the reasons it's so important to know our theology here, uh, to know what we believe and why we believe it, and therefore be able to uh, go to our brothers or sisters in Christ and confront them if these sorts of things ought to happen. Well, I want us to look a little bit more, a little bit deeper about um, the way we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, being brothers and sisters and being part of the body of Christ. Uh, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. So first of all, uh, is, is loving one another is, is uh, part of the body of Christ. We're to help our brothers and sisters with their strength and the truth. We need to bring them back. And then, then there's a, a, another thing here. Uh, someone began reading in verse 12 there and um, give you a long one. Read through 26. 14 verses. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on these, those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow, bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Thank you. Okay, so what, um, what is Paul saying about believers in this passage? Anyone want to boil it down for us? Nobody's more important than the other. Nobody's more important than the other. I think that's true. Each part is absolutely necessary. What else might we conclude about it? We all need each other. We all need each other. We all serve a function. Yeah, and we all serve a function. And we all need that function to be served. We all definitely need 
each, each other. And um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, the, 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 the uh, what you say, the eye cannot say to the hand, is it? What happens if, if the uh, <clears throat> eye rejects the hand? What happens to the hand? Go places it shouldn't go. <laughs> it'll touch the stove when it's hot. Or it will pick up the snake that will bite it. Different sorts of things, you know. The eye, the eye is there to help control where the, where the hand goes. And it doesn't want it. So it, we need each other in, in this sort of way. We do need each other. And... Um, so, God has arranged it that way in the church, he says. And so, we have to understand in the body of Christ that we definitely need each other. And God has given every single believer certain gifts or a gift. And that that is to be used. And um, so another passage from Paul on, on the gifts, Ephesians 4. He expands on it a little bit here. Um, someone else will read for us. Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? <clears throat> he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Okay. Paul is uh, building a little bit I think on... on <clears throat> We get some other ideas about gifts and the giftedness within the church here. What are some other concepts that we see here from Ephesians chapter 4 regarding the body of Christ and the gifts that are given to the different individuals and the different parts? What are some other things that he elaborates on here? Teaching. He elaborates on teaching. What, what, what is it for? He elaborates on it a little bit more here than in First Corinthians. That's to help. Building up of the church. Building up of the church. Building up of the body. So the gifts that we have, are they to lift? If, if I am gifted in any way, does that mean I'm lifted up with it? Or is that what I use that gift to do? No. No, I'm supposed to use it for the body, right? supposed to be concerned for the other individuals in the church and use the gifts that God has given to me and you are to use the gifts God's given to you not for your own benefit but for the benefit of the body. Lifting each one up so that each one what, would he, what does he say here in verse 12 and 13 each one's built up until what? 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. <clears throat> Become mature. Mature in Christ, right? Um, until we all reach the, the place of um, the fullness of Christ. Wow, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, and that, that's what we're supposed to be. And then verse 14 uh, continues on with telling us as we use these gifts that have been given to us, something else takes place or should take place, right? What's that? We're no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Right. So we become, as we become mature, we're beginning to learn scripture better, we're learning our theology better, we're understanding the truth by it. And when the Jehovah's Witness comes and knocks on your door, you're not deceived by it. You're not deceived by them coming and telling you that Jesus was the very first creation of God, but he is indeed a creation. Wasn't God eternal? Um, and that when you take them to John 1, 1, which you know you should, because that is one passage very important for us to say that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus being the Word, and he was God. Well, they say, well, you don't know your Greek. If you knew your Greek, you would understand that that is, should be translated in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. You know enough to know you can take them further down in that passage and show them that in the Greek you can tell them in the Greek in your translation right here where it says there was a man who came from God and his name was John you do know that in the Greek he came from and there's no definite article for God there you see there was a man who came from a God but your translation doesn't translate it that way why why did you do it here and not there? And you can, and you can go on with it that way. And, and, and so you should know. You've been built up to know these things and to know that indeed Jesus isn't um, a creation. Uh, the second person of the Trinity is not a creation of God. Rather, he is God eternal. One God who exists in three persons. It's uh, kind of mysterious to us, but it's what the scripture teaches, right? We believe it. The scripture teaches us that even in heaven, the heavenly beings which we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. So we're wanting to have on earth in our lives to be acting as they act in heaven. And what do we see going on in heaven in Revelation chapter 5? Worship. Worship who? Christ. Worshiping Christ. The lamb who was slain before the uh, beginning of the world. Looks like the lamb who was slain. And they're falling down. The heavenly beings are falling down and worshiping him. In the law of God, the law of Jehovah in the Old Testament, who is, who is to be worshipped? God alone, right? Anyone else is worshipped? What's that called? Idolatry. Idolatry is sinful. But here we've been praying that we would behave on earth even as it is in heaven. And Jesus is being worshipped in heaven. If Jesus is not God, what are we doing? Idolatry, right? 
be what they were doing in heaven, but it's not. They're truly, be, truly worshiping him. Even the angel, when John is tempted to fall down and worship him in the book of Revelation, what's the angel say to him? Don't do that. I'm just a creature like you are. And Jesus never does that. He accepts the worship and the praise, which would be wrong. All right, so... <clears throat> um, long illustration there. That we're building each other up for the maturity and the fullness of Christ so that we're not tossed uh, to and fro by the, the winds of, of doctrine uh, that, uh, uh, from the craftiness and the, and the cunning of man with their deceitful schemes and really the lies of Satan. That we as believers in Christ are using the gifts that God has given us to build us up so that we can overcome those things. Okay, so... Um, as believers, we have a responsibility to one another to keep, hold one another to the truth. As believers, we have a responsibility to one another to use the gifts that God has given us so that the body can function properly. As believers, we have a responsibility to take the gifts that God has given to us to build one another up as well. And I believe that uh, Ephesians 5, 25, he's, uh, he's talking about husbands and wives here. He's uh, giving instructions for families. He's been given the instruction for uh, children and, uh, and uh, parents and slaves and masters. And here he is giving uh, responsibilities for wives and husbands to one another. In verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives. And then he's illustrating it here. He says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We are to, when you think about the love that Christ had for the church, what is the church? The body of believers, right? The body of Christ. The different, the, the, those who are uh, in the church are his, his brothers and sisters, us, those given to him by the Lord, those who have been uh, elected before the foundation of the earth and and justified and being sanctified. Christ loved them so much. Christ loved the church so much. What does he do? Gives up his life for it. As we look at the church, we have to ask ourselves, do we love the church that much? Do we love the other individuals in the church that much? Am I willing to say, I would give up my life for you? think that as, as Christ has loved the church, we should love the church too. And, um, and, and I think that uh, it should reflect, <coughs> its, reflect itself in the way that we treat each other, holding each other to the truth, taking the gifts that God has given us and using it to, uh, to, so that the body can function properly and so that we would build each other up. Uh, to being mature and so that we're not ever uh, tossed about uh, by every wind of doctrine that comes up. And um, we're to love the church as much that uh, we're willing to uh, care for one another uh, this way as well. So by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. They will know that you are part of my family if you love one another this much. Pray for one another that we will be that way as well.